0: This podcast is brought to you by the Vojnovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with Dana Bowen Matthew a lawyer, author, law professor, and healthcare activist about her career, her research, and her important book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. Dana is a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School and the Colorado School of Public Health. Recently she has been in Washington, D.C. as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellow. And at the same time, she served as a Brookings Institution Fellow. Dana, you've written a book that I think is really important, Just Medicine. But before we get into it, I'd love it if you would describe the course of your career and maybe uh, talk about how along the way you, you started noticing and thinking about some of the concepts that are in your book. How did you start out to become an academic and a lawyer and all of those things at once?
2: Then I feel very lucky because as a lawyer with one degree, the j d degree I've had really four careers and um I'm embarking on the fifth now. So um, I became a lawyer largely because of the way I grew up. I grew up in the segregated north, and I went to school in uh, one world and came home each day to another world. And the fact that those two worlds did not speak to one another about the problems in each uh, really informed my decision to become a lawyer, which I think is really a fancy word for saying a problem solver. Mm So I got the JD and, of course, began to practice law. I was a litigator, large national firm, lots of jury cases, very exciting life, and one day my torts professor, my law professor, called me up and said, how about an academic career? Well, that began career number two. Lots of very, very good mentors and people helped me make that transition to becoming a legal academic. And so for many years, I got the chance not to look at how things are, just the is, but also the ought, and that's what academics do. We look at problems and think, how could this be made better? We get to think deeply about the issues that we see in the world that need fixing. And so I've really enjoyed that wonderful opportunity. Career number three came when I moved to Colorado, and one day, again, serendipitously, a colleague saw me in the staircase and said, how would you like to become the associate dean? <laughs> well, wow. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. At that time, I didn't know what an associate dean was. And I will confess that to this day, my favorite faculty members are those who do not know where the dean's office is. But therein began a seven-year career in academic administration. So I was the associate dean for academic affairs, and then the vice dean of the University of Colorado Law School, and what a rod that was to strategically plan the growth, development, and transformation of an institution with an absolutely phenomenal mentor, David Getches, who showed me how academics can both lead in the academy and in the community.
1: I find that universities are very challenging places for leadership. They're complicated and uh, all kinds of people have different sorts of hidden, sometimes, authority. So you really were thrown into leadership in a very challenging arena, weren't you?
2: It was challenging. But I think one of the hallmarks of my career has been to, uh, to go towards challenges. Um, what I looked for uh, were people with vision. Um, and those people tend to be very opinionated. Um, they tend to be very complicated people to lead, um, but they also tend to be extremely productive. And we ended up with um, just a really transformational time in the, in the university's history, in the law school's history. Um, and yes, it was difficult, but so very worth it.
1: And so then what happened in the transition to your next career?
2: I was very fortunate that after seven years in the dean's office, uh, another thing that the academy affords is a sabbatical. So I had a one-year sabbatical, and during that time, I really got to take much of the research that I had done, much of the scholarship that I had read, and think about how I wanted to translate that into policy. Fortunately, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has sponsored a health policy fellowship in Washington, D.C. for exactly that point in my career, mid-career, where I had been a leader on a small stage. I had been a scholar on a small stage, and Robert Wood Johnson takes scholars to Washington, D.C. to bring them into policy, and that became my fourth career.
1: Where did you start out in Washington?
2: I started out at the... Senate office of uh, Debbie Stabenow, Democrat from Michigan. Um, Serendipitously, I landed there in November and the terrible Flint water crisis happened in January. So I'm on the health policy team for the senator from Michigan as a public health scholar, as the most important public health crisis in the country unfolds. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's that's starting in,
1: in the deep end.
2: I started in the deep end. Yeah, it was really quite amazing. Um, and and that was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, Fellowship. The year before that, I had the very good fortune to have been in the EPA's Office of Civil Rights, and there, too, I did public health crises. Um, I, you know, the word serendipitous keeps coming up because I focused on a public health crisis in Genesee County, which is where Flint, Michigan is. So even before the water crisis, I was working in the Office of Civil Rights on a very serious uh, health disparity problem in Flint, Michigan. So I feel very uh, much as though the stars aligned uh, for me in Washington, D.C., and I got experience that uh, really dovetailed and helped me see the big picture.
1: Now, as I recall, at about the same time you were swimming in the deep end on Capitol Hill, you released your book, uh, "Just Medicine: A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare." So you had a very important book coming out. So another part of your career was continuing at the same time. Is that is
2: that correct? That's absolutely correct. That was one of the products of the sabbatical. Um, just Medicine. Really became a way for me to organize what I thought was one of the underappreciated problems about health disparities. And lots and lots of people are thinking, thankfully, deeply about how to bring equity to health, health care, and public health in the United States. And I thought that discrimination, racial and ethnic discrimination particularly, were being overlooked.
1: You make a convincing case. You bring forward lots of of research suggesting that even if people mean well, even if doctors and other health providers intend to do well, there is bias just built into the system. Can you explain how that works?
2: Yes, Bev, that's exactly right. uh, I'm married to a doctor, and so I spend a lot of time uh, both observing and uh, hearing about the healthcare system and the people who work in it. And they are good people. They are people who intend to serve, to heal, and to do well by their patients. And yet, this persistent problem of disparities, I think, is significantly attributable to implicit bias. Implicit bias is another way of saying unconscious discrimination. I am a person who is intending to be an egalitarian, to intend to be fair, who intends with all my heart to treat people fairly and equally. And yet, because of the environment that I live in, that is the news stories, the music, the movies, the discourse, I am constantly fed stereotypes that I involuntarily internalize. So unconscious racism or implicit bias occurs When I, as a very well-meaning person, encounter people and act out of those unconscious stereotypes, those stereotypes will inform my judgments, my treatment decisions, the way I look at statistical information, the way I make recommendations about treatment. And before I know it, unwittingly, I am discriminating against patients I deeply care about. So
1: even if we intend to do right in say the healthcare um system, because of the assumptions and, and, and the the judgments that we just make in the course of our of our practical work, the statistics show that white patients and brown patients and black patients and various categories of of, of patients of all sorts are treated in different ways as a reflection of the biases that, uh, that, that many uh, of the uh, practitioners have. Is that, is that right?
2: Sure. And let me, let me give you examples from stories. One of the wonderful things I got to do in the book is interview several patients and doctors. And some of the doctors that I interviewed happened to be the most active In serving underserved patients so you said even if I intend to do well I would almost say and the research bears out some of the research that dr. Lewis Penner and others have done bears out especially if I intend to do well so some of the doctors I interviewed I'm going to tell you one about an emergency physician in the Midwest of course I uh, just give you general categories because these are real people Mm -hmm. in real interviews And this is a physician who is serving in what we call a safety net hospital, a hospital that is dedicated to patients who are underrepresented, underfinanced, and typically very, very ill. So this is a person who dedicates their lives to doing the right thing, if you will, in quotes. Well, she was telling me during an interview a story about a patient who came in who is African-American and she's white and in the course of the story she demonstrated her own implicit biases and by the end she looked up and she said wow i guess i'm pretty biased myself she wouldn't have expected it and i wouldn't expect it and it was it was a simple story of a man who was a laborer he was african american he fell off of a ladder and he was uninsured and she said as soon as i walked into the room i assumed he didn't have the resources I assumed he didn't have identification. I assumed all manner of things about him without even realizing it, and I started down a treatment course I didn't intend and wouldn't have intended if he had been a person of means. However, very soon in her taking a history and physical, he revealed his connections politically. He revealed that he was actually a middle-class man and that he wasn't a laborer, even though he was dressed as a laborer. And as she described it, she said, my treatment choices changed. Now, those biases, she carried with her unintentionally. They informed her treatment. And my book argues when you scale those up across an entire healthcare system, they play a very significant and non-trivial part in the terrible dis- disparities that we see that result in 84,000 unnecessary deaths a year wow. due to bias.
1: Well, you also say, though, that these that this embedded bias is, you, you called it malleable, that it's subject to change, that we can do something about it. How, how do we start?
2: Well, that's right, Bev. That's one of the reasons I feel so lucky to bring law and medicine together. When things are malleable, we can hold people accountable for changing them. So my book is about how the law, civil rights law particularly, can create an environment and a social norm that holds us accountable for doing the best we can to align our best instincts to be equalitarian, to be fair with our actions in spite of unconscious bias. So that's a systemic solution for the healthcare system. As individuals, though, once we know that we can do something about our implicit biases, despite the fact that they are unintentional and subconscious, then I believe we each as individuals have a responsibility to change the way our biases influence us.
1: Is a big part of it looking for ways to notice more frequently?
2: That's one of the biggest parts of it. The data tells us that when a person realizes that their biases are actually betraying and contradicting their best intentions, just that knowledge changes their decision-making, and we've seen that with physicians. But we can go further. There's very good research and some very good consulting companies like Cook Ross and others that teach us that making sure that we prime ourselves to remind ourselves of biases before we enter situations that require discretion. Take a hiring situation where you are asked to evaluate candidates both on objective and subjective criteria. If we prime ourselves to remember that unwittingly we will be informed by our biases, then we can put in place systems that counteract those. We can scrub resumes of names. We can create hiring committees that include the voices of many people. We can collect data to make sure that we review the outcomes as well as our intentions and discover patterns that we may unwittingly be feeding into. We can do things like make sure that on each of the decision-making committees that require discretion, I'm using hiring again as Mm -hmm. the example, there are many different voices and viewpoints included. One of the most important things that we see in the malleability literature is that counter-stereotypes work. What do I mean by that? When there are examples of people who contradict your stereotypes in your work environment, in your decision-making team, in your social context, then you are able to shake away those stereotypes and realize that
0: they're wrong. We'll be back with more after this. Sometimes the best way to cut through red tape is with sharp skills. The 100% online Master's of Public Administration program from the Ohio University Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs is a program that can help you bolster your passion for public service with the expertise to find solutions. Become an expert communicator. Learn to manage human resources and budgets. Construct effective and actionable policy demonstrate your leadership by partnering with the private sector and non-governmental organizations three specialized concentrations are available to help you narrow your focus public leadership and management nonprofit management and environmental and energy policy visit ohio.edu/mpa
1: If we have uh, different people in the room, if we have exposure to a wider array of people, one of the things that happens naturally, perhaps, is that our, our assumptions are challenged and we start to, to resort them. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right, Beth. That's exactly right. So that uh, we see in experiments, if someone is taught by an African-American male professor then even if the literature that they read daily in the popular press tells them that the stereotype of black males is one way, they will have living, breathing proof that a person in their setting contradicts that. And
1: what can we do if uh, we are the minority? You've been uh, a black woman in... um, I a predominantly white male law school, I suspect, Going, if you were back in time enough, that was the case. How do you um, thrive the way you have? How do you manage the situation for yourself and perhaps at the same time as an individual act to change the situation?
2: Well, I will say that, um, unfortunately, it's still the case that African-Americans are in the minority in in the legal academy and the academy generally, and so I do live that daily. Um, But here's the dirty little secret. Minority, majority, African-American, white, Latino, Asian, we all have biases, and that's because biases are generated environmentally. So directly to answer your question, I have to be cognizant of my own biases, of my own expectations. And because, again, I grew up in the segregated North, my biases are negative towards the majority population. And so I have to be aware of those. I have to counteract those. I bring close into my friendship circle people who are not like me. I spend time listening to the people who I would otherwise have categorized and stereotyped so that they become human and not just enigmas in my mind. I join book clubs. I go out to plays. I read books. I interact socially. I
1: challenge myself. And is part of managing yourself, part of taking care of yourself, is managing the stress of a situation, managing your own sort of centered person so that being a minority or being frustrated at a situation doesn't overcome you.
2: Yes, indeed, that is one of the reasons that uh, my next career move is to uh, be back in washington, d c um, to be back on the East Coast. Part of taking care of myself at this point, um, one of my career goals at this point, Bev, is to take my career from success to significance. i I really have enjoyed a lot of success, thankfully, by the grace of God, and now I would like to have um, a significant contribution to health equity, And justice in our country. And so to do that, I'm moving east in part because I want to be not the one and only in conversations, but I want to be in community with people who are also striving for health equity, with people who are also working for population health improvement. Um, I'll have a community of people. I don't remember and should attribute this, but recently I read, um, I always read um, your column and and your book, Act Like an Entrepreneur and Think Like a CEO. Those types of advisory things really helped me. And so recently, um, one uh, nugget I saw was go where you're loved. Go to the place where people around you will encourage and bring out the best in you. And so back on the East Coast where mm-hmm. I grew up, I have family, I have friends, I have community, and I can manage the stress by having dinner with a group of women who are African-American in the academy every Wednesday night. I can manage the stress by having downtime with family, and that's a, that's a way um to take care of myself as I look towards the next stage of my career.
1: I'm so glad to hear that you're you're taking care of yourself in the midst of your your very big and important goals of of having some impact on health equity. I work as you know with quite a few leaders in 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 important places and for many of them loneliness is an issue, exhaustion is an issue as they're start to feel that they're struggling to create change alone. And the really successful ones are the ones who are able to find community and find ways to take care of themselves. And that gives them the, the strength and the power to have a huge impact in the areas they care about. So, so congratulations. So you're, you're moving back to the East Coast and you're pretty close to doing that now?
2: I'll be leaving Colorado, the beautiful Rocky Mountain West, which has treated me well for almost 15 years. Um, again, I'm buoyed by the encouragement that you've given me to embrace change uh-huh. um, at this stage in my career. Thank you very much, Bev. Um, and and I'll, be, um, I'll be moving in July of 2017.
1: As you're embracing change, do you have any suggestions for other people who are thinking that they'd like to make a change and it just sounds too um, difficult. You're somebody who has changed careers. How, how how did you bring yourself to to jump in, to create different paths?
2: I've had a lot of good mentors, a lot of excellent advisors. Um, you've been one. Um, uh, Gwen McKinney has been another. Alicia Basook has been another. I always find advisors to bounce my ideas off of, um, and to listen to input. Um, I also think that a characteristic I saw in other leaders that I embrace now um, is that I see opportunity in every situation. So whomever I meet, no matter what their station or job might be, I see opportunity that we might work together in some way in the future. And I imagine that the conversation will contribute positively to something that I'm doing in the future. So I'm always gathering data from every setting. I love that. Um,
1: And I I do have um, the sense from our conversations that you get up every day looking for opportunities to connect with the people you come across, with the things that are going around you, with the problems that you read about, that you sort of start the day, even if it's going to be a tough day, knowing that there's it's a day full of opportunity.
2: I do. And some days, um, I, if you ask me to give advice, some days it doesn't go as I planned at uh-huh. all. Um, and uh, uh, I have to say in the end, I do have a really strong faith component that tells me that everything will ultimately work together for good. And so, Um, I think keeping a positive outlook uh, at the end of the day, um, optimism really goes a long way.
1: Well, Dana, I wish you well in this next phase, and I'm absolutely positive you're going to do well. I, I, I think by helping us to understand how we're all part of the division and the bias that we that we see around us and we all have a part to play in changing it and that embracing that change we can change ourselves. I, I, I think it's it's a wonderful message. So thank you very much for uh, joining me today and um, sharing the message. Do you have any um, parting tips for people who are thinking about wanting to do their bit? <laughs>
2: Bev, I would only say that uh, we often use the word minority, majority. Uh, I really don't embrace those words. We're all human, and if you think of yourself as part of the human race, um, you can make it better.
1: I think that says it all. Thank you so much, Dana.
2: Thank you, Bev. Bye-bye now.
1: Today we've been talking with lawyer, researcher, and author Dana Bowen-Matthew about her career and her important book, Just Medicine, a cure for racial inequality in American healthcare. Today's career tip is that you can develop a richer, more fully engaged career if you pause to look around at the biases that are embedded in our organizations and culture. We all make assumptions about other people, other groups, and particularly about people who are different from us by pausing to notice and challenge and move past our biases, we can connect in more meaningful and successful ways. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO.